want to invite you to open up to Acts 6. Acts 6, starting at verse 8. I want to confess that I, uh, I struggled with this passage during this week. And not necessarily because I found it very difficult to understand. I didn't even struggle with the length of the passage where we're going to see this is the most verses I've ever preached through at one shot. It wasn't understanding the content. It wasn't even the difficulty in coming up with an outline. Where I've struggled is in seeing how this connects to us. How to take it beyond just the story that we tell our kids, that we put it in those categories of David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, maybe of Samson and destroying the building. And we think, oh, and Stephen the martyr. But how do we get beyond just that story to say, no, wait, this is why this is here. This is how this is meant to impact my life. Even this morning, I was wrestling with these questions, but as I continued to think, meditate, and pray about this passage, what what I came to realize is that this passage perfectly encapsulates the message and point of the entire book of Acts. But it does it in a way that's a little surprising. The way that the truth of the entire book of Acts, the way that the transformational intent is demonstrated, revealed in this story, kind of breaks the pattern that we've been seeing in the book of Acts. Several months ago, when we began our study in Acts, we discussed a big idea as well as a transformational intent. And this was our big idea for the whole book. No obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom for the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. And we've seen that. We've seen how obstacle after obstacle, trial after trial, whether it's inside the church or outside the church, these keep on coming up that would look like they would stop God's plan, and they don't. No obstacle overcomes the Father's plan. We've seen that nothing stops Christ's kingdom from being proclaimed, established the way the Father has said. We've seen the power of the Holy Spirit working through those who proclaim Christ. We've also seen that the point of all of this is not just to share a story. It's not just to give the history of the early church, but this is meant to motivate subsequent Christians to take heart and take action. Because of the truth that you are seeing here, take heart. Nothing overcomes the Father's plan. Take action. You're part of the Father's plan. But I think there's a temptation for us as we go through Acts and think, that's Acts. That was a long time ago. It was a special period It was right after Jesus had left. You still have the apostles. You have those who literally walked with Jesus. You still are seeing these signs and wonders. That's then. What about now? I'm not an apostle. I didn't walk with Jesus. I wasn't someone who was on the road to Damascus and had a great light come upon me and heard the voice of Christ. So so that's good for them, but what am I supposed to do? What's this supposed to look like for me? And that's where the strength of the story of Stephen comes in. Because Stephen's going to demonstrate a model for us Stephen's not one of the apostles. He's not one of even the famous Christians. He's not a Barnabas or Timothy that's mentioned throughout. He's only mentioned in Acts. Stephen's someone whose story ends in tragedy. He doesn't get brought out of prison like Peter and John he doesn't ha- isn't flogged like the apostles, which is bad, but then again is released. No, what do we talk about Stephen? Stephen the martyr. 
And we might look at this and say, wait, this is surprising. And yet it is in the surprise, in the strength of breaking this pattern, that we find the strength of how this is meant to impact us. This story is what we're meant to do. This story is a model that we're supposed to follow. I think Luke offers us this story so that we might be encouraged. Here is a man like us, not an apostle, an ordinary Christian who God used in extraordinary ways because he faithfully looked and lived like Jesus. This is a man we should imitate, a man who shared a message that matters. A man who embraced the mission no matter the cost. A man who followed the model of Christ. Here's our big idea this morning. The proud resist God's plan of salvation, but God powerfully uses those who embrace and look like Jesus. The proud are going to resist God's plan, but God powerfully uses uses those who embrace and look like Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, this is a long passage, and so we're going to be moving through this at a pace. So right now, why don't we look at Acts 6, 8 through 15, and I'm going to read this first section. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. As we begin this passage, I, I, I want to ask, who is Stephen? Well, we don't know much about him. The first time he was mentioned was in the passage we saw last week. But Luke, and Luke does this a lot with his books, he will mention a character in passing in order to bring them back up later. Luke did this with Barnabas. We already heard about Barnabas and how he laid things at the apostles' feet and then We don't hear about Barnabas for a while until he comes back up. In our passage later, at the end of our passage, Luke is going to present a new character that we're not going to hear from for a bit and then is going to come back up. So what did Luke say about Stephen previously? What do we know about the character of this man? We'll look back at verse 3 of chapter 6. When the apostles give counsel to the congregation, they say this, Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. This first element, who's Stephen? He's a man of character, but he's a member of the church. Pick out from among you. This wasn't someone that the apostles said, well, we've got Stephen, and he's the ace, uh, ace in the pocket? Ace in your sleeve? Ace in the hole. There we go. Uh, Yeah, I was looking for it. We've got Stephen. He's the guy. And and we're going to say, oh, you have this problem? Well, we've been waiting to bring Stephen forward. No, where do they go? Pick out from among you. Pick out one of you. Now, what we know from this is that Stephen was a man of character who was living a life of integrity. When we go on and it says the list of people that were picked, it it specifies and it looks at Stephen and it describes his character. Look down then at verse 5. What they said pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 
We jump now to verse 8 in our passage, and it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power. This was a man who was living like Christ. This was a man who had received the Spirit because he had placed his faith in Christ alone for the salvation of his sins, and it's making a difference in how he walks. To the point, when you have this huge number of people, over 15,000, he's one of the seven that they pick. But what is he doing? He's doing great signs and wonders among the people. You know what I think that this displays about Stephen's character? Stephen was a man of boldness. Now understand, we might look at this and we say, Stephen, I thought you were talking about some guy that we could like imitate and emulate, but I've never done like great signs and wonders. Understand that the purpose of, of describing these signs and wonders is demonstrating the truth of his message. That's the way signs and wonders are used throughout scripture. Every time you have different people who are messengers from God doing signs and wonders, it's to demonstrate the truth of their message. What do we see with Moses? Moses did signs and wonders. What I'm saying is true. When we come to Christ, what did Christ do? Signs and wonders. What I'm saying is true. When we've come to the apostles, what did they do? Signs and wonders. We're seeing the same thing here with Stephen. But understand, the point is not, oh, well, the reason everything happened here is because he's doing signs and wonders. Why? Do you know what they never mention in their argument against him? Signs and wonders. What they're upset about is the content of what he's saying. But here's what I want us to see with the boldness. In the different times that we have seen signs and wonders mentioned in the book of Acts, what has always been the result? They've been dragged before the Sanhedrin. They've been thrown in prison. They've been beaten. Do you think Stephen knew that that's what happened before? And what is Stephen still choosing to do? Stephen is being bold. This is a person that we should imitate in his boldness. We should also imitate him, though, in his wisdom. Because what it says is that a dispute arose. These are the people, these are other Hellenists, and, and what we believe is also that Stephen, both because of his name being a Greek name, also because of how he was picked in the previous passage, Stephen is a Hellenist. He's a Greek-speaking Jew, and he's going among these people, and he's proclaiming Christ, and they have a problem with it. And so a dispute arises. But look at verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Sherry earlier read a passage for us from Matthew 10, 19 through 20, in which Christ tells his followers, this is what you should expect. One of the truths that we're, as we're going through this passage to see, wait, why, why is this passage so necessary? How is this helping us? It's because it's revealing this is the life you should expect to live in a fallen world. They will hate you for my name. They will persecute you. They will drag you before the authorities. But then Jesus says these, these words that are so interesting when he says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. We're seeing the fulfillment of those words in this passage. Not in the life of apostles, not in the life of these super Christians. We're seeing it in the life of a faithful witness. Now, we might look at that verse and say, oh, wait a second, I'm not so sure about this. Like, does that mean we should never prepare? We should never study? Should, was I wrong? Obviously, if you have a handout, I did some pre-study and I put something together. So was I wrong to do that? Should I have just come here before you and said, all right, let's open up and the Spirit's just going to talk through me and I don't need to do any studying? No, that's not what he's saying. 
Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. We should study. In Hebrews, it talks about you should already be at the point of teaching others, but you're still drinking spiritual milk. You can't digest real spiritual food. We should grow. We should prepare. What we should not be is anxious. See, the problem with this idea of being anxious in how to prepare the perfect answer is whose strength are you relying on? Our strength. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm going to be in this moment. They're, they're going to bring me before, and I need to come up with the perfect combination of words in order to get me out of this. Problem with that is, one, you think that you know what you need to say. Two, you think you know the result you need to accomplish. But God says, rely on my wisdom. Rely on what I'm going to do. And do you think Stephen was thinking, oh man, I hope that at the end of this I become the first martyr. But God's wisdom is doing something greater. The spirit is working through Stephen. So we see his boldness and we see his wisdom. But look at how the people continue to plot against him. Then they secretly instigated men and said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. What are they so upset about? Again, is it the signs and wonders? No, so don't think, well, okay, this will never happen to me. This isn't expected of me because I can't do signs and wonders. It can happen to you as long as you're proclaiming the truth of Christ. That's the part that they're upset about. And so where, and when you look at this, when, if we were to, to um, diagram this, to, to digest it, to see what is the core problem that they have, this is what it is. They look at Stephen, who's challenging their process. He's challenging the process that they believe makes them worthy of God. And it all comes down to the place and the prophets. And they're saying, wait a second. This Stephen, he's talking about this place. He's saying things against this place. He's talking against Moses and the process, the law that Moses told us. He's saying it's not that. Why would that upset them so much? That's everything they're doing their life based on. It all comes to this process. But it's a little more than that. And we're going to see this as we go through because what Stephen's actually doing is challenging their pride because they think they can do it on their own. One of the elements of a Hellenist Jew is most likely that they grew up far away from Jerusalem, but they see the place as so important, they have decided to move back to the Holy Land. They've decided to move back and be in Jerusalem, the holy place. We already know from last week's passage, there's tension between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And so they want to make sure, look, we don't want to make this worse for us. Where then they're saying, oh, whoa, the Hellenists, they're accepting what Stephen's saying. And so they're going really strong against this. They are disputing it to the point where they are losing all of their integrity in order to get rid of Stephen. They're bringing in false witnesses. They're inciting this rebellion and they don't see the irony of what they're doing. But in the face of such adversity, what do we see from Stephen? We see his courage. Because Stephen responds to what they're going to say. Now we could think, oh, well, Stephen, maybe if he prepared a little more, which he didn't, maybe if he prepared a little more, he could have found an argument that would get him out of this. Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen intentionally leans in and says, you guys have a problem with, with maybe what I'm saying? Let's turn that up to 11. Let's really get to the point of this issue. Here's what I think is fascinating, though, in, in what it says at the end of the passage in verse 15. 
and gazing at him, all who sat in the council, so that's the Sanhedrin, the same people that imprisoned Peter and John, the same people that beat all of the apostles, this is now the people that Stephen is standing in front of. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now here's a question for us that I think I want to just challenge some of our modern sensibilities on this. When we say someone has the face of an angel, what do we usually, who do we describe like that? Oh, look, here's, oh, there, there's Harper. Stand up, Stephen. There, look, the face of an angel. <laughs> Is that how Scripture describes the faces of angels? When people see the face of an angel, what is the most common response in Scripture? Terror, fear. Here is a messenger from God. Here is a member of the Lord's army. Here is one who will not back down from their mission. I'm not sure people are looking at Stephen as the face of an angel and saying, oh, he was so radiant and so at peace. He was like a a Buddhist monk who was just meditating. No. Here is a fearsome warrior. Here is one who has just been confronted with the lies of this generation and is saying, I will not back down. The chief priest looks at him and says, are these things so? And Stephen said, and then he responds. Before we move on to this next section, here's what I want us to see. This is a man we should imitate. Here is a man with great boldness. A man who is relying on the spirit for wisdom. A man who in the face of a challenge responds with courage. We might look at the rest of Acts and say, I mean, that's Peter. That's different. Oh, wait, that's Paul. No, this is Stephen. A man who's mentioned in this passage and then only two other times in the rest of the book of Acts in passing and never again in the rest of the New Testament. And yet God is powerfully using him. Here's what we're going to do now. We're going to do something a little bit different. We haven't read through the whole passage, and so I'm going to ask someone to read through this whole passage. I've already asked them, so don't think I'm going to call someone at random. But I want to ask you to imagine this setting. Imagine the crowd that has been incited and stirred up to a place where they are angry where they are hearing Stephen's words, but there stands Stephen with courage and power and he is and wisdom and he is going to boldly, courageously confront the lies that they are saying. As we're going through this passage, because we're not going to have time to go every single element and explain it, as we're going through it, here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for the ways in which Stephen talks about both the different places as well as the process. Listen to how Stephen demonstrates God's work and the people's response. Trace it out. If you want, you can close your eyes. You can just listen to this message that they heard 2,000 years ago. You can look in your handout. You can underline those different things. But what I want you to be listening for is the place and process that Stephen reveals, as well as God's work compared to the people's response. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. 
but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into, G into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This, who's the, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods that will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? 
You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he, spoke to Mos- just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Do you see the courage of Stephen? The people come to him and say, You're speaking against this place. You're speaking against our prophets. You are taking away from our process. And what does Stephen say? You want to talk about the place? You want to talk about the prophets? You want to talk about the process? We can do that. But what I will show you is that because of your pride, you have missed the point. What does Stephen demonstrate about the place? Starting with Abraham. Was Abraham in the place? Yeah, he came out of one. He left Mesopotamia. He went into this land. And what does Stephen say? But he did not own any of it. Even to the point what it says in verse 17 or 16, even to the point when it came time to bury his beloved wife, he had to go to the inhabitants of the land and beg them, would you please sell me? some of this land that God has promised me in order to bury my wife. Didn't seem like it was all about the place for Abraham. When we go to Joseph, Joseph is taken out of the place. He goes to Egypt. And from there, all of the people of Israel join him, all 75. They're not in the place. They spend 400 years away from that place. When Moses pulls them out of Egypt, he comes before he's pulled out. When he is called, there is a holy place. But what is the holy place? The place of God's presence. That burning bush, why is it holy to the point where Moses has to take off his shoes? Because God is here. Did that happen in the place of the temple? Even later, as they were going, and they have this tabernacle that they bring, bring up, and this tabernacle journeys with them in the wilderness. And that's the place. Was that the place of the temple? And then when you come to David and Solomon, and David says, God, let me build you a house that you can dwell in. God says, no, you're a man of blood. So Solomon builds this house, and yet what we would think is, oh, God will dwell in this place. And yet what does God say? The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You missed the point. Your temple is too big and your God is too small. If you think that God can dwell in something that you have made with your own hands, you have missed the point. Rather than seeing their inability, they began trusting in their ability. You missed the point. Why did God have to have a place among the people? Because of their wickedness. Because of their sin. 
Right now, some of you are working through the scripture and you, you began again. And if you're going through and you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, how many laws are there to demonstrate that there is a separation between God and man? When you hear the construction of the tabernacle, how much of it is to demonstrate you may not enter this place? That place was not there so it could contain God. That place was there to demonstrate their inability to be with God. So how about the process and the prophets? How did the people respond to what God was doing? They were jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him in order that he could rescue his family. But they didn't respond that way. How about Moses, someone who was beautiful in God's sight, someone who was mighty in his words and deeds, someone who God placed in the right location in order to be prepared to save the people. How did they respond to him? The man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? But God was choosing Moses. He tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? God did. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and who are fathers. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. And how did the people respond? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. They didn't listen to the prophet, and they rejected the place. One of the things that I find very interesting in Stephen's message is looking at how many things that were mentioned about Stephen in the previous paragraph show up here. Signs and wonders, messages from angels, truth about a redeemer, rejection from the people. So he comes to the end where he says this, you stiff-necked people. You think the process was just doing all of these things. Oh, you've been circumcised. No, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Your pride has kept you from seeing the point. You missed the process. You misunderstood the place because of your pride. This message that Stephen is sharing is a message we must heed. It is so easy for us to miss the point in our pride. Our pride keeps us from the plan of salvation God wants to show us. Our pride trusts in our strength and our abilities rather than what God has revealed. And who's the one that is being used by God right now to reveal to these people their pride, the fact that they missed the point? Stephen normal guy, but a guy who understood the mission, a guy who spoke the message. So how do the people then respond? 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. What is this showing us? To, on, a, on an earthly level, we look at it and we say, uh-oh, this failed. This didn't work. Stephen, you chose the wrong words. This is not how the people were meant to respond. But I want us to see something about Stephen embracing this mission. Stephen is an example of one who is trusting and obeying the mission that God has given him. Look at the confidence Stephen has. He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Do you see Stephen's total confidence even in the face of great persecution, even in the face of consequences that will lead to his death? But he trusts God. He trusts God and therefore he obeys. But look at also then his commitment he says, but they cried out. Then they're, they're running at him. They cast him out and he looks and he's falling to his knees. He cried out with a loud voice. He asks the father, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I want you to see the tension of this scene. Look at the way in which Luke describes this. When they hear, hear this message, what is their first response? the grinding and gnashing of teeth, which is later also described in Scripture as the sound of hell. Their pride completely rejects this message. When Stephen continues to speak and he's seeing the glory of God, what do they do? They stop up their ears so that they cannot hear another word of his speech and they rush at him. And then look, as the, in the midst of all of this, in everything that they're doing, what does he finally demonstrate, Stephen demonstrate in the end? Compassion. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a testimony. What a testimony of someone who heeded the message, shared the message, and is embracing the mission. A testimony of someone who is trusting and obeying. But we look at this and we say, this story has a tragic ending. It does have a tragic ending. It's not the tragic ending that we think. Is this a tragic ending for Stephen? What did Stephen see? The glory of God. Christ Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne. He sees this. Is Stephen in this place and just thinking, what a tragedy. I'm about to die. What is the tragedy that Stephen sees? Father, don't hold this sin against them. Far more tragic than my death is their eternal condemnation. But there's another element of this story that I want us to see. Who's standing there? You remember how I talked about how Luke presents things, just kind of slides someone in and then comes back around to it? Who's standing and seeing all of this? They cast him out. This is verse 58. 
out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here's what we're going to start seeing through the rest of the book. God used Stephen in order to accomplish his mission. What was the mission at the very beginning of the book? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea to the ends of the earth. Do you know what's going to happen in chapter 8? A scattering. A scattering to where? Samaria. At this point, the church has not left Jerusalem, but it is stated because of the death of Stephen, because of the persecution, where does the church explode out to? Samaria. Where else is it supposed to get to? The ends of? Who's going to take it to the ends of the earth? Who's going to reach and at the end of this book be in prison in the empire of the known world? Paul, who's now called Saul. Was God doing something far beyond what we could imagine and powerfully using the example of Stephen? He was. But don't, don't miss this. Did Stephen know any of that was going to happen? As Stephen is being stoned, is he looking over there and saying, Saul, you're next. You're the guy. It, it's going to happen to you. No. But what's interesting is because what God is doing is far beyond what we could understand. In, in Acts 20, 22, verse 20, Paul brings up Stephen. He says, I was there seeing Stephen's faithful witness as he was stoned. Paul's later gonna, is going to write, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I wonder if one of the people that Paul strived to imitate was not Stephen. The first Christian he really got to observe. The first Christian he got to see, this is what it looks like to live for Christ. See, this is an example. We are meant to embrace this mission. But, but here's what I want, want to make clear. First, trials do not always come with happy endings. And yet our assurance is that they will always have happy endings. That might sound confusing. Right here in the present, we don't know if there's a happy ending. Stephen's dead. But what guarantee do we have as those who are in Christ? In the end, it's a happy ending. But here's the other element I want us to see. When we're looking at this, it could be possible for you to hear, oh man, Stephen's saying to imitate Stephen. We have to do all these things like Stephen. And there's a temptation for us to make this a humanistic message. Why is Stephen's story so powerful. Who's the true model that Stephen is following? Who does Stephen look like? Stephen looks like Jesus. When you go back to the end of chapter 6, what are some of the things that we see full of grace and power? How was Jesus described in John? He came full of grace. In his ministry and signs and wonders, what did we see of Christ? He was a person of power. When the people disputed with him and argued, what were they astounded by? His wisdom. When they could not find a way to actually do anything against him, what did they incite? A rebellion against him. When they still could not get the right witnesses, what did they then turn to? False witnesses. And what was the element that they said? He's speaking out against our law. He's abolishing it. He's coming and he's trying to destroy our place. Is that not what they're saying about Stephen? When it came to the message that Christ proclaimed, did he not say, this was pointing to me? As Stephen says, this message is about Christ. In his final moments, when he was hanging on the cross, did he not say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What does Stephen say? Receive my spirit. Do not hold the sin against them. Who are we really seeing in the story of Stephen? We're seeing the story of Christ. The power of Stephen's story is not Stephen. 
the reason that we can see anything in here to imitate is because in Stephen's story, we can see someone who is imitating Christ. And so we imitate Stephen as he was imitating Christ. This story is for us. This is the message of Acts. No obstacle overcomes the Father's plan in establishing Christ's kingdom as the Spirit empowers Christians to proclaim Christ. We are seeing that here. Take heart, take action, even if it means your death. Why? Because God is doing something powerful. You might think, I can't do this. What is happening in Acts is beyond me. You're right, it is beyond you. It was also beyond the apostles, it was beyond Christ, but it's not beyond God. The Father's plan will be accomplished. Christ's kingdom will never be conquered. The Holy Spirit will empower. And so we imitate this man as he imitates Christ. We heed his message as it is the message of Christ. And we embrace the mission that Christ both gave to us and modeled for us. If we are truly to be used, it will not be in our pride. Rather, it will be as we embrace and look like Jesus. The proud resist God's plan of salvation, but God powerfully uses those who embrace and look like Jesus. God can powerfully use people like us if we look like Jesus. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the truth of this account, even though it ended in the death of your servant. But Lord, we can think of another story that ended with the death of your servant. Christ died in our place. Christ came and he shared with us the message of salvation. He embraced the mission that you gave us and he called us to live like him. Father, thank you that Stephen rose to that call. Thank you that we can imitate Stephen because Stephen is an imitation of you. Father, protect us from our pride Protect us from rejecting the plan that you have given us. Protect us from being like the people in the story who think that rather than the Bible demonstrating our inability to do anything in ourselves, we think that the Bible shows us how we can do this in our own ability. Father, help us to humble ourselves, to embrace Jesus so we can look like Jesus, so that we might be powerfully used for your mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.